May 14th. It is uh, 2014. It's Wednesday night. The message is called Replacement. I don't know whether that terrified you, the video that you just saw, or whether it amused you, but the reality is this is the method in which the gospel is now franchised. This is what Americans find palatable. This is how you get them to swallow the gospel. And we're more than willing to adapt the gospel in any way that puts more people in the seats. And friends, that is sad. In Galatians, the first chapter, turn with me to the sixth verse and say you are there when you are there. Maybe the harshest part of the entire New Testament, the strictest warning that anyone ever received, starts in this sixth verse. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are running to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Was Paul emphatically clear? So then the question becomes, how far can you get from the genuine gospel before you're preaching another gospel? And enter the theologians in the great debate. I have no interest in trying to get close to preaching another gospel. But I will say this, many who went before us saw the condition of the church in their day. Men like Martin Luther saw an apostate church and they stood up and said, I don't want to be a part of what is happening here. When the Anglican church grew corrupt, John John and Charles Wesley stood up and they did not want to be a part of what was happening. They wanted to be a part of the authentic move of God no matter how commonplace, palatable, acceptable, contemporary the other church services were. And when they got stagnant in their faith, God raised up a guy named William Booth who believed that the armies of God were actually an army and that they could get the salvation message around the world. He cared about men that nobody else cared about because he believed Christ did. They called him the general. And when he got radically bold, the Methodists spewed him out. Today... The organization that he founded is little more than a humanitarian organization, but the man himself was a radical for Jesus. This is William Bramwell Booth, probably not going to pass for a contemporant pastor, probably not going to reveal his neat graphic T-shirt and the tattoo on his bicep to let you know he has a past. But he did spend his entire life serving the poor. He did spend his entire life living the motto, go for souls and go for the worst. Somewhere along the way, the church has gotten derailed. 
These kind of men are not our heroes anymore. We don't buy their books. We don't pattern ourselves after their lives. And we don't because we have a new gospel, a replacement gospel of success. This man died in 1912. And near his death, he was asked a question. What do you think is the biggest problem facing the church in the next hundred years? His response was religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity without Christ. Forgiveness without repentance. Come on, somebody. Salvation without regeneration. Politics without God. Heaven without hell. Tell me. Tell me, was the man prophesying? Now, he thought he was just answering a question, but he keenly put his finger upon the problem. Our church has become a comfortable place for backsliders and goats. No searing conviction. We are uncomfortable with the idea of making someone uncomfortable even though Paul had no problem writing to a church saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the true gospel. Leonard Ravenhill once said, and rightly so, that if Jesus Christ preached the gospel of the American pastorate, they never would have crucified him. Comfort to backsliders. This begins to happen when we elevate the benefits of the cross to the exclusion of its other key components, when we talk only about what Jesus can do for you and never speak to you about what is required for you to do for Jesus, when we speak to you about the rescuing power of salvation, but we never talk to you about what you're being saved from, Never talk to you about the horrors of hell. When we promise you heaven in the next life and help in this life, if you will simply raise a pinky while every cowardly head is bowed, we have lessened the gospel. Today it's not all that uncommon to hear messages that center around life enhancement, self-help, and self-esteem. Life enhancement has replaced repentance. Self-help has replaced holiness. Self-esteem has replaced obedience. And so we have replaced the gospel with a counterfeit. Please turn with me. I want you to see in Matthew 4 and verse 17 the words of our beloved Christ. Four in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach with every head bowed, with every eye closed. From that time on, Jesus began to preach if you want your best life now. From that time on, Jesus began to preach every day can be like Friday. By the way, how was Friday for Jesus? From that time on, Jesus began to preach 365 confessions of wealth. The first words of the very first sermon that Jesus Christ ever preached to the people of Israel. Repent. Oh, that's a dirty word in church now. Repent. 
Repent simply means acknowledge that you are going absolutely, teetotally in the wrong direction. Your life is headed for hell because you're a monstrous sinner in the hands of God. But if you will turn from that, the kingdom is breaking in. The kingdom is upon us. The reign of the king is confronting you now. This was the gospel. We rarely hear it anymore. When we do talk of repentance, for us, repentance is an inward thing that nobody can rightly judge. But while you're in the book of Matthew, look at the third chapter and read the eighth verse with me. Why don't we start in the seventh verse for fun? But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, I'm so glad you're here. It increased our census. We can tell the denominational headquarters, we got more baptisms today. You brood of vipers, how insensitive, how intolerant. Who is he to judge them? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What was coming upon mankind? Nothing's changed. We have to flee from the coming wrath. And something is required to flee the wrath of God. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They were not accepted as members of even the listening congregation until they demonstrated in some way the desire to have a changed life. But we can sit in a church for two decades with zero evidence of anything other than intellectual assent. And as long as you tithe and don't do anything so embarrassing to the pastor as to get his name in the paper... We have no problem with it because we have a replacement gospel. I'm persuaded, friends, that when you see a scripture like Mark 6 and verse 12, please go there, that nothing has changed in the nature of God. I'm persuaded that we're on better footing to be on the 2,000-year-old footsteps of Jesus. Jesus gave them instructions, friends, before he sent out the twelve. But in the twelfth verse, Mark summarizes what he sent them out to preach. They went out and preached that people should give more to the church. They went out and preached that people should receive a hundredfold blessing so that they too can drive the drug dealer's vehicle. They went out and preached and appealed to the people's greed to fill the coffer boxes of the kingdom so more work could get done. No. They went out and preached that people should repent. Do you know what Israel found so offensive about Jesus' message? They thought they had no need to repent. And is the church any different today? Ah, I've been a religious man all of my life. So's the devil quotes the word, better than most Christians. What does being religious have to do with having repented and thrown yourself into the kingdom of God at the feet of a merciful Savior who received you while you were still an enemy and is willing to qualify you as a son? See, we have decided 
that success outweighs everything else. In Acts 2.38, do you remember? The people had asked Peter a question when he preached the first sermon after Pentecost. They said, what must we do? And Peter replied, repent. What an amazing concept. How many televangelists can you watch? How many hours can you watch them and you never hear this word? It's the first word out of these men of God's mouths. We are fundamentally inclined in the wrong direction. Brother Spencer came and shared a word with me during the worship service. He read to me from Deuteronomy 5. It's God speaking and he says, Oh, that their hearts were inclined to follow me. It broke the very heart of God when he's giving his law because he knew that the people's hearts were bent in the wrong direction. Brings us to an entirely another point. When do you ever hear the word being used to strip someone of their self-righteousness anymore? When are you ever confronted when you say, you know, I've been a pretty good guy all of my life. Why do the men of God not say, liar? None are good, not one. Jesus wouldn't even receive that title. But we, we allow each other to confer it upon ourselves. Repent was the first word out of his mouth when Peter and John healed the lame at the gate beautiful in the third chapter of Acts in the 19th verse and the people gathered. What do you think Peter said to them? Repent then and turn to God. You want to hear that? That's two ways to say repent. It's like saying repent, double up, say repent again. He apparently wanted to make sure they understood the beginning of wisdom. When you turn around in your ways, not when you say you believe, not when you acknowledge Jesus is Lord, when you act like he's Lord because you do something different today than you would have done yesterday out of honor for the king. This is the beginning of a walk with God. But therein lies another problem. Today's church does not expect a walk with God. They expect a one-time belief in God. And that one-time belief for a few fuzzy moments at an altar forever seals your fate if only it were true. Friends, what happened to fighting the good fight of faith? When did the fight simply become a contractual agreement made between an eight-year-old and God for a few seconds at an altar that he never made good on or intended to keep? We need to wake up. So, oh, Pastor, I think we're pretty good in here. This has always been the people of God's problem. The person sitting on your left and right might be just fine, but maybe you're not. You know, when you mix goats among sheep, it's hard to tell them apart until you watch how they act. Oh, dear God, did he call some of us goats. Your actions determine whether you're a goat or a sheep. And if you don't want a pastor that can tell the difference, there's plenty of churches out there for you, if, in fact, they be churches. Life enhancement replaced repentance. Self-help replaced holiness. Romans 6, in the 22nd verse has much to say on the subject. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. What is the benefit of walking with Jesus? Holiness and life, you're right, Steve. 
Holiness in life. Holiness is not just a requirement of salvation. It is the benefit of salvation. It is the result of salvation. So when asked a question on national TV, is homosexuality wrong? And a man can only say it's not God's best for you. He's not experiencing the benefits of salvation because possibly he doesn't understand what salvation is. The benefit of salvation is that you're no longer a slave to sin and you can walk in holiness. The reason we couch our lives in fig leaves is because they're marked with so little holiness. We talk in terms of what we believe in spite of what we do. Your belief is supposed to inspire your action. And if you really believe He's Lord and believe He's all-powerful and believe that He will help you and provide a way out in temptation, then you act like it and it leads you into holiness. It's a benefit of loving the Lord. They don't even have time to say this in contemporary services because they need to run this crew out the door fast enough to get the next crew in because really it's just about moving people through the plates, you know? Self-esteem. Self-esteem has become the watchword from my childhood forward. Little Johnny's self-esteem. When I was two, I want you all to know a leaf blew in the window. Tragic. It landed on my foot. I've never been the same since. We've heard this Dr. Phil trash, this Oprah Winfrey gospel so long that we've actually slipped into believing it. You all come from the same diseased stock, and so do I. Black, white, red, yellow, we all come from Adam, and he sinned, and we were in his image a sinner. You're supposed to have bad self-esteem when you're a sinner. You should not esteem a monstrous sinner in the hands of God. Self-esteem should be rooted in your obedience. Turn with me to 1 Peter. Let's find out the source of biblical self-esteem if you want to borrow their worldly word. Say there when you're there. Don't let the screen spoil you. If you let your grip on the Word of God go, what else will you have? Pretty soon men in funny colors will lie to you about what it says and extort you. And they did it for a thousand years and the world's forgotten. Three years after the Reformation. Three. The average guy on the street could quote more of the Scripture than the professional clergy. You know why? They valued the Word of God. They had been lied to, and they didn't want to be lied to again. They wanted to know the truth. How many times do you meet someone and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the Bible. Say, tell me about your favorite verse from Obadiah. They didn't know Obadiah was in it. You say, tell me your favorite verse from Amos, and they thought he made cookies. Say, come on, quote me something from Hezekiah. Oh, that one we know. Yeah, that's not a book. We're all sure we know what is in it because we haven't read it, but we've listened to the cliff notes on TV. And what are the cliff notes? Oh, the cliff notes are whatever make you feel better about yourself, whatever puts a dollar in the plate that is put in front of you, whatever builds a bigger building, big enough to house the ego of the humble man of God standing behind the pulpit. First Peter tells us how we get self-esteem. 
in 1 Peter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children. Come on, somebody. As what? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I'm holy. Did anybody hear holy in that sentence? You know, if this were not the Word of God and it were simply a letter written from me to you, you would probably still be hung up on the fact that prior to saying holy five times, I said you were ignorant. But we skip over it because Peter said it. I want you to understand that men of God were never scared to call out sin where they saw it. And he said, you're now obedient children, but you were ignorant. When is the last time you saw somebody get saved and said, I have lived an ignorant, pitiable life? We don't hear it anymore because that's not what's preached. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What were you redeemed with? When you're an obedient child, you feel the worth that the blood says you are worth. What did Jesus think of you? When you're an obedient child, you have something that is worth more than silver or gold. You have something that is so self-esteem building that all the devils in hell cannot convince you that God has accepted you. You have the precious blood of the Lamb that has sprinkled your conscience and made it clean. Talk to me about self-esteem and I will talk to you about repentance from dead works. Your self-esteem suffers when you live an unholy life. Say, no, 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 my self-esteem was I believe what those people said about me. That is also unholy. The Word of God is supposed to define you. Get in it and find out what it says. My daddy called me fat. My daddy called me stupid. My mama didn't love me. We're all part of the same diseased stock. If we're going to sit around like American Idol contestants and talk about who came from the worst background so that wherever we are now looks that much better, where would it ever end? You were a crack baby. Okay. My daddy was a cocaine addict and my mother didn't want me. Does that somehow enhance God's holiness? He was just as holy before I said it as after I said it. Watch what you say that it doesn't change your state. Saints, self-esteem is a matter of accepting the biblical definition of your life. You are what God says you are. When you're an obedient child, you feel the approval of heaven. And when you're disobedient, you should feel the disapproval of heaven. And if you're so calloused from sin that you don't feel it, there ought to be a man of God in your life that shoves it in your face. Because he loves you, not because he hates you. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, the Bible says. Worldly sorrow brings death or condemnation. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Sometimes there should be tears in church. 
We talk in terms of, oh, I made a mistake. Could you put that into perspective for me? What do you mean you made a mistake? You made a mistake that you planned for two weeks, that you then committed over a period of days? That was your mistake? We need sometimes to be broken over sin. I want you to look around at how bad things have gotten and why I'm preaching this way. I don't watch TV, but even a man that doesn't watch TV couldn't help but notice that the NFL, the hallmark of masculinity, supposedly, had two men making out. One football player open mouth kissing another one. And the news media seems to find no problem with it, but if Tim Tebow says something that's about Jesus, they hate him for it. Say, oh, well, that bad media. Friends, it's what the church has allowed. We've raised it up for ourselves. It's through mamby-pamby, milksop, limp-wristed pastors that don't call out sin. And we call them successful because they've got the biggest churches. Oh, man. If big was always successful, then our sumo wrestlers ought to be running the 100-meter dash, huh? okay to smile sometimes in church. I'm starting to calm down. I'm going to lose my voice if I don't. Oh, my goodness. Peter talked about the precious blood, so let me talk about the blood for just a minute. I love the forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. I love it. 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 I couldn't say I love it enough. But we need to remember one other little told aspect of the blood of Christ. Could you turn with me to Romans, the fifth chapter? Say there when you're there. Some of you are thinking, oh my God, I brought guests and pastors worked up. You have no idea. There it is. Sometimes we need to get worked up. I think we've been too apathetic. I think we've been a little too lazy, a little too thick-skinned. You know, it's not godly to not notice. It's not. What happens when the watchman on the wall becomes a lump on the wall? In Romans 5, start with me in verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's What's that word? Wrath. Wrath through Him. Forgiveness in the blood of Christ is preached, but it's not preached that it is a necessity to deliver you from the wrath of God. We don't acknowledge anymore that outside of Christ, God's wrath remains on you. That God poured out His wrath on Jesus in your place. We talk in terms of substitutionary atonement and no one knows what it means, but it sounds good. He took a terrible beating that we deserved. I think God just loves everybody. Have you ever read the fifth psalm? Did you make it that far? The fifth psalm and the fifth verse has a really interesting statement about that. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You strongly dislike all who do wrong. Is that what it says? What's it say? Come on, church, you're literate. What's it say? 
You've been told your whole life that God never hated anybody. You're wrong. His wrath, his hate, he abhors those who are doing wrong. And in the middle of it, repentance will turn his wrath. It was poured out on Jesus so that mercy could be given you. But if you will not repent, his wrath remains on you. We never hear it anymore. It's not preached. It's not taught because it's not popular. So we have a very popular message that God himself would reject. God's law and his holiness not being used to strip away self-righteousness. Everybody you meet says, okay, I'm fine. I'm good. You're good. We're all Christians, right? Sometimes they'll even boil it down so far as to say, well, we're all God's children. If we're all God's children, then why did Jesus look squarely in the face of men that were twice as religious as most of us and say, your father is the devil? James 2, let us look at that. Say there when you were there. In the second chapter of James, start with me in the 10th verse. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. How much... All of it. So what do we say about I've been a pretty good person? If you broke even one of God's righteous commandments, you are guilty of breaking all of God's commandments. Is there an honest man or woman in this audience? Or that one day listens to this online that can look at that scripture and say, no, I've been a pretty good person all of my life. But I hear it Every day. If somebody's waiting on us at a table, they can say the most abhorrent, obnoxious things. And somebody slips and says that I'm a pastor or says something about Jesus and then I get to hear about how religious they've been all of their life and how their wife goes to church and they got pretty good kids. It's fig leaf religion, friends. It's just as silly as you thought the contemporary video was, but it has been so mass-marketed because there's a demand for it. You know, there's only 300 million Americans. Did you know that? Out of a population in the world of well over 6 billion, and we consume 70 to 80% of all the drugs in the world. Did you know that? What's that have to do with anything? You create a demand in the market, and there will be a supply. We have demanded a weak, emaciated, impotent gospel. We have demanded it at the top of our lungs every time we've called a pastor intolerant for teaching the truth. We've demanded it at the top of our lungs every time we've said he's mean-spirited or he's harsh. We've demanded it at the top of our lungs every time we shut up when we should have spoke up for what is right. And now we are eating the fruit of that harvest. In our children's classrooms, they can teach pornography and call it literature, but you cannot read a Bible. And it's our fault. 
say, well, no, no, it's not my fault. If it happened on your watch while you were alive, you share in it, unless, of course, you've been jailed for trying to keep it from happening. See, these men were so radical that wrote this book, they were imprisoned for their faith. Oh, my goodness. When did we get the idea that we should sit crisscross applesauce because nobody can say the word Indian style anymore and just get along? We're not supposed to get along, friends. We're supposed to be part of the Salvation Army. We're supposed to see people radically snatched out of the hell and delivered into the kingdom of light. They say, well, if they don't like us, it won't happen. If they hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will get it to them. And I don't much care whether they like you or not. If you're on fire and you know you're on fire, you're not going to give me a personality test before you accept my help out. You know what all of that really is? It's shooting the messenger because you don't like the message. Oh, it's just the way that he said it. Have you never read the way Jesus spoke to people? He is the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Glory. He's the definition of love. And he had no problem looking at people and saying, Your father is the devil. But we're pretty sure that he doesn't want us to offend anybody. If we had had such weak constitutions in the generations that went before us, this nation never would have been formed. Somewhere we better find our deep convictions. You better figure out what masculine holiness is because hell has left the gates open and the onslaught of wickedness is upon us. It's been turning up and turning up and turning up. They called it subtle and said it was slow. It's not even slow anymore. We're drinking it through a fire hose. Our children can walk around with a phone in their hand and see things that the Bible put people to death for. In our public libraries, it's a right. The replacement gospel, the gospel of success, if it increases numbers, if it increases giving to our causes, if the people enjoy it, if God is growing the church and adding to membership, it must be good. As one man told me, there is a name attached to every one of those numbers. Oh, okay. So more people must mean more salvations, right? More resources must mean that we get more done, right? Well, what if there's only more people because... We've appealed to their greed and their self-interest. And we've reduced Jesus simply to a means to their desired end. What if Jesus has become little more than their way to financial success? Jesus or Tony Robbins, I'm not sure which, you know. Jesus or Zig Ziglar, I don't know which. Maybe whoever we find most inspirational today. They wouldn't like Jesus very much. Guys, I think if the Apostle John were writing to the seven churches of Revelation today, have you ever been shocked when you read the things that he said to them? What would he say now? I started talking to you about William Booth. Not a perfect man. 
Handsome, though, wasn't he? <laughs> oh, dear God, he looked like a vagrant. Yeah. I mean, just take it all in, right? Beauty and majesty. People attended his services because they hoped to grow a beard like that. They hoped to get a hairline like that. They thought this is the image of success. You know why people attended his services? Because two million derelicts came to love Jesus through his ministry. What kind of man reaches out to derelicts? A man possessed by the Spirit of God who believes you can take a derelict and turn him into something that is altogether world-changing. I'm sick of the Ken and Barbie gospel. I quite literally don't fit into it. <laughs> go for souls and go for the worst. Oh, man, this is a gospel based on self-sacrifice. This is a gospel that is based on being like Jesus, not simply using Jesus as your investment program. Listen, Kenneth Hagin was a man of God, is today. Living in the presence of God, a man of God. But he himself, in a book called The Midas Touch, rebuked this ridiculous prosperity message that has crept up in his absence. People took what he taught about a hundredfold return and they twisted it out of proportions to make the gospel little better than a wicked Ponzi scheme. And we put up with it. I come from a place in Louisiana where they say, money cometh. And people confess that money is coming and call it faith. Might just be a gospel of greed, peddling it for profit. Could you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2 in verse 17? Say there when you were there. Have I upset you yet? Nobody? Really? I am trying some kind of hard. Paul, after speaking to the Galatians, said, if I were still trying to please man, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. And surely you can understand why he would say that after saying, I'm astonished at how quickly you've deserted the gospel. I mean, is that, how, is that what you'd like to open your mail and read? Are you in 2 Corinthians? I'm not. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Men that are sent from God have God's heart. They hate sin. They love holiness. They preach a clear message of repentance because it's what's necessary to enter the kingdom. I don't know what these other people are. I'll leave that up to someone else to decide. But I know a replacement gospel when I see it. I'm familiar enough with the real thing. I'm close enough to the real thing. I'm in love enough with the real thing that I recognize. You know, when I was a much younger man and Judah was knee-high to a grasshopper, I took him to, uh, to the mall 
It was a service store. I had to buy a coat. I went from a, a, a 44 long to a, a 48 uh, long, and now I think I'm in the 50s somewhere. But back then, I, I had to get a coat, right? Because how can you preach uh, a funeral without, without a coat? So I'm there looking through the coat rack, and my little boy uh, sees who he thinks is his mama. Blonde-haired woman turned with her back to him, and he ran straight up, grabbed her waist, and buried his face in her buttocks. To my horror, she turned around, and I had never seen her before in my life. And I said what any good pastor would say, I'm so sorry, ma'am, apparently any blonde will do. <laughs> what are you going to say? But I want to tell you I'm familiar enough with the real thing that I'm not accepting a counterfeit. You know, one of the hardest stories for me to understand in all of the Bible is, is Jacob with Rachel and Leah. Yeah. I don't think a veil would trick me. Yeah. I love Jesus Christ. And I can tell the difference between what is Christ and is not Christ. And it's high time somebody stood up and said, this is not Christ. Yeah. Of course, a spouse would know that. And maybe the reason we don't hear it is because they're not the bride of Christ. So, oh, pastor, that's a really judgmental thing. Well, you can apply it as you like. I'm simply saying Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. That's what he said. That's what the Word says. So I want to give you one more quote from Mr. Booth before we get to our text tonight. This text, that's not it. This is, that, that was Paul writing to Timothy, Susan. This one is from Mr. Booth. He said, we must wake ourselves up. All right, you guys had not been Pentecostal long enough. We must wake ourselves up. Or somebody else will take our place and bear our cross and thereby rob us of our crown. Come on, church, if we sleep while the world goes to hell in a handbasket, someone else might wake up and do the work you were called to do, and they'll end up with the crown you were meant to have. One thing I know about William Booth is he died fighting the fight. The Methodists didn't like him. The Anglicans didn't like him. Most of the respectable church in the world didn't like him. You know who loved him? the two million derelicts that got saved in his ministry. By the way, what did the religious community think of Jesus? Come on, church. It's time to wake up. Now I would like to remind you of what Paul said to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy. It's the fourth chapter and the second verse. And sometimes our grasp of the original language is, is limited. Sometimes when something's translated into English, it just misses something. So I put it on the screen for you in the Amplified so that some of the finest scholars that, that our time has available to us can put into parentheses words that will help you catch the context in the original language. 2 Timothy 4.2 Herald and preach the word. 
Keep your sense of urgency. Stand by. Be at hand and ready. Whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable. Whether it is convenient or inconvenient. Whether it is welcome or unwelcome. You, as a preacher of the word, are to show people in what way their lives are. Shut it down. That's just not palatable anymore. And convince them, rebuking and correcting, warning and urging and encouraging them, being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. This was one man of God who knew the real thing. And he was encouraging somebody he handed the baton to. Don't settle for anything less than this. This is who you are in Christ. Friends, if your life's never upset anybody, it'd be hard for me to understand how you could be in Christ. Paul also told Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It sounds like anyone, not just a few, anyone who is in Christ is going to ruffle a few feathers. I had not been born again two days when the little mall cops arrested me. Thankfully for me, they were not real cops. They were more like security guards with zip ties. But I was already ruffling feathers. So, oh, well, that zeal without knowledge. Well, do you have knowledge with no zeal? Let me ask you which is more effective. I wanted to see the world come to Jesus. And I still want to see the world come to Jesus. And I'm disappointed and I'm hurt when I see people lying about my king and masquerading as these pimps for profit. It upsets me because it obscures and muddies the waters. But false brothers that are interested in becoming millionaires off Jesus, I find them unpalatable. I had the joy of going with Peter Uba to a pastor's meeting. And Peter might be more crazy than I am. And Peter wanted me to meet a pastor in our area. And he asked me what we were into, and I was telling him about feeding people in India and how we had just come back from a 30-plus day trip and all of the nasty things that we got to eat and all the times we didn't get to eat, but how we saw tuberculosis healed. How we saw boils fall off of people. How we saw the amazing, miraculous power of God. And I said, by the way, brother, what are you preaching on tonight? He said, how to think like a millionaire and how to be a millionaire. Matthew was there, I kid you not. Leaned across the table and said, you make me sick. That's not very pastorly. Well, let me ask you, what do you think John the Baptist would have said? His church has got the right name. He got a cross out front. He preaches from the Bible just like you do. So does the devil. So, but he might have been a very good man. Then he ought to accept a slap in the face the same way David did, as an oil, a kindness to keep him from straying from the truth. This is the problem with our manby-pamby milk salt mentality. We're worried about hurting somebody's feelings rather than seeing their souls saved. Some members of my own family don't really like me. And I'm okay with that. Because they don't like me because I tell them the truth about their state. So it's not really me they don't like. It's the message. 
the proof of that is if I just sit and drink with them, if I just sit and do the things that they do, there's no problem. As long as we talk about politics, there's no problem. But when I bring up mighty King Jesus, suddenly we got a problem. Oh, friends, I'm just okay being in the same boat with Jesus. He had problems with his family, too. You ever read his own mama thought he was crazy? Read the Gospel of Mark. You'll be shocked what's in the Bible. We never take the time to examine it. Do y'all want to go to our text for tonight? We're going to move towards communion. I'm trying to preach you into a frenzy. I want you to examine your life. I want you to walk out of here confident. I don't want you worried about life enhancement, self-help, and self-esteem. I want you to repent, be holy and obedient, and then you walk out with your hands held high, and no demon in hell will be able to stop you. Oh, they can be famous if they want to. I just want heaven to know my name. Go to 2 Chronicles. Somebody told me the other day that I get loud when I preach. I didn't realize it till today. My wife has given me the, the little charismatic head waggle. Three snaps in a Z formation. You still love me? That makes one in the room. Amen. Second Chronicles. By the way, while I'm on the subject of loving your wife, is it too much to ask for our pastors to love one woman for the rest of their life and be the better for it? Is it too much to ask for a pastor not to need to sleep with a secretary or somebody else in the congregation? Is it too much to ask for the pastor not to be on number four? Is it too much to ask to have a man of God that loves the Lord enough to be faithful to his wife? Did you know? that the way you act towards your fellow man is a reflection of how you feel about God? Did you know that? See, because 1 John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. This means if you're walking right with him, you're not sleeping around on your wife. Is it too much to ask to have a pastor whose children recognize he's the exact same way behind a pulpit as he is sitting in his living room? Or do we have to accept our pastors as whoremongers? Do we have to accept our pastor's children as hellions because they've lived their whole life staring at hypocrisy? Could we actually expect somebody to be like Jesus? By the grace of God, we better raise some men up who will do it or this world is damned. But I saw, I saw in the Word 11 scared little Jewish boys that would come and throw themselves at the feet of Jesus and they changed the world as we knew it. So I have hope. I believe in a victorious church of Jesus Christ, but it won't come sitting on our salvation with our hands over our mouths. In the name of Jesus, stand up and preach the Word. In the name of Jesus, make a difference. Some of you are so burning with the Word, you're not happy in your jobs. Some of you are so burning with the Word, you just antsy, you don't know what to do. Good, good. Channel every bit of that into an all-out left and right hand assault on the devil. He's surely assaulting you. 
whether you can see it or not. How many of you set out to pray and you get the hammer put on you? Set out to do abortion ministry and get the hammer put on you? Well, sometimes, don't you just want to fight back? You can. When you go to Walmart, you don't have to just get bread. You can also find a soul. When you go to AutoZone because your old car leaking oil broke down for the third time, you don't have to go find a confession of wealth. You can go find a soul. If I've got to spend all of this money defending ourselves in court, I am sure going to make it cost the devil something. I will spend every dime we have, collect, can get, rent, sell, pawn, whatever it is, and go find souls. We're going to set up an association of churches that spans not just the United States, but international. We're going to have a school of ministry. We're going to find Holy Ghost fired up, uncompromising Elijah spirit-filled men who recognize this pansy gospel for what it is, and they're not such cowards that they won't say so. Oh, there needs to be a revival of the heart of men like C.T. Studd, men like David Livingstone, men. They didn't know what metrosexuals were. They were men. They took their love for God so seriously that it was embedded in their character. They had calluses on their hands, and it wasn't just turning pages in a Bible. They did something with their faith. Oh, I don't want to be left out. Nobody's going to steal my crown. I don't know how much time I have left, but I know how much time I intend to use. All of it. Where were we at? Second Chronicles 30. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord. Matthew, let me just say I'm sorry. I tell Matthew every time we have a communion service, look, brother, I'm going to preach just a tiny little bit. I mean, smidgen. And then we'll take communion, man. We will worship with the glories of God. I mean, you have all the time you want. Like I said, I don't know how much time there is, but I know how much I'm going to use. Verse 2 the king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. Why do you think the people didn't assemble? Because the priests weren't even ready. The strength of our great nation was found in the pulpits. It was never found in the halls of Congress. The strength of the American people was found in the heart of God, transferred from the Bible to them. And when we kicked it out of our schoolhouses, kicked it out of our governments, and shut down our pulpits or raised up pansies in their place, we have fundamentally changed things. But I'm here to tell you that Hezekiah's Passover also teaches us something. You can have a defunct priesthood. You can have a priesthood that has failed in every possible way. But if the people begin to hunger for God, it'll cause the priests to repent. There is no revival in history that was begun because of the priesthood. I don't care what anybody says. I've heard it, oh, well, we got together and the pastors and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. 
There are no great men of God. There's just ordinary men. You know why God moves on people? Because they're hungry for it. Did Israel's deliverance come because of how great Moses' desire was? Moses was just the tool. God had heard the people's groaning and crying. They wanted liberation and they didn't even know what it looked like. So God raised up Moses. And when Moses was scared, he raised up Aaron. And he had raised up as many as it took because he cared about the people. The Lord of glory cares about our nation. And the priesthood can be defunct. But if the people themselves will rise up. I'm not just talking about this nation. I love the nations of the world. In the last few years, I've been in over 20 of them. I love the nations of the world because we're standing here praying for the second coming of Christ and he hasn't come the first time as far as they know in more than three quarters of the world. I love them because we have an obligation to them. But revival won't start with a pastorate. It starts with the people. Follow me here. Verse 4, the plan seemed right to both the king and to the whole assembly. They decided to send the proclamation throughout Israel. Where did the proclamation go? Throughout all Israel. Come on now, who has not heard? Who has not? They may have heard about a Jesus, but which one? The one that wants to give them the drug dealer's vehicle? Which one? The one that doesn't do miracles anymore? Which one? The one that looks like a fishing lure hanging off of a cross? Which one? Which Jesus did they hear about? Did they hear about the authentic King Jesus that says, repent and enter my kingdom? Did they hear about the real King Jesus or did they hear about some weak, emaciated version that was meant to fleece people's pockets and manipulate their souls? The proclamation needs to go out everywhere and it'll go through you. Look at what it said. Start with me at 6b, if you will. People of Israel, return to the Lord. What does that mean? The beginning of the proclamation was return to the Lord. That means repent. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may... See, when you turn to him, something happens. He turns towards you. That he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers. So he made them an object of horror, as you see. All people would stand up and walk out of this service right here. Can you imagine looking at people and saying your life is an object of horror? Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. If you didn't get them with the first line, you certainly got them with that line, right? Come to the sanctuary. Apparently, he was not seeker-sensitive. What did he say to them to tell them to come to the sanctuary? You need to repent. Your life is horrific, and your daddy's life was worse than yours which he has consecrated forever, serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. What was the message? You are under the wrath of God because of disobedience. Your life is a wreck. But if you will turn towards him, 
he will remove his wrath from you. And the benefit of him breaking your chains to sin is holiness, life, and the kingdom of God. Look at verse 12. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. We don't need a media campaign. We don't need to, to have flyers at every house in Sugar Land. If we preach the right message and we live the right message, when I say we, I mean you and me. If every one of you every day, 24 hours a day, are committed to the cause of Christ, God will unite us with those who are united with him. Some will be new in their faith. Some will be old in their faith. We don't need new strategies. We don't need new programs. We don't need new tattoos so you'll think we're cool. We don't. We need the masculine holiness that has been attractive from heaven forever that says sin doesn't have a hold on me. You love your trendy pastor until he runs off with his second secretary. How many have we had? Unity of mind. Do you know what they did next? If you read verse 14, they took all of their idolatry and they threw it into the Kidron Valley. I don't have time to teach it tonight, but you need to know something. This end of the Kidron Valley was called the Valley of Ben-Hanoin, later translated Gehenna, later translated Hell. Jesus spoke about it and said, it's like that. The worm never dies and the fire never goes out. They sent their idolatry to hell. They didn't keep it in case Christ didn't work out as an investment program. They didn't keep it to hedge their bet. You know, we're not even comfortable with saying things like that in church. But Paul would have been just fine with it. Damn this hellish life, I'm now heaven bound. Would have been fine with it. We've ceded so much of our lives to the enemy that we're scared that any kind of strong speech would be offensive. The apostles were not like that. Look at verse 15. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. I uh, don't have time to tell you, but that is not the right month. <laughs> the priest and the Levites were... The priest and the Levites were... Shame. The priest and the Levites were... You want to talk about revival in this nation? You need to live a life that shames the pastors who have led us. When your life outshines theirs, not in stardom, but in holiness, in obedience, in self-sacrifice, they might wake up too. There weren't enough of them consecrated on the first month of the year. They weren't ready to do their priestly duty. But in the second month, so many people gathered hungry for God that the priests were ashamed of themselves. Look at verse 6. Then they took up their regular positions as prescribed in the law of Moses. Maybe our cowardly pastorate is simply waiting to see if there's anybody out there that wants the real gospel. Have you ever read that Paul wrote to Timothy? He said they will raise up for themselves 
teachers to tickle their itching ears. Church, we get what we want. We get what we tolerate. Evidently, you like it rough. But all around us, this is becoming a pariah, an apparition, something that is strange, archaic relic from some time in the past. It is the real gospel. It crucifies the flesh. Matthew 16, 24 says, If any man would come after me, he must take up his cross. Any man, not just some men, not just a special pastor. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In the contemporary world, nobody has to carry a cross. They just have to be chic, relevant, cool, talented, beautiful. Jesus would have been left out of all of those categories. If Jesus preached like the men preach today, they never would have killed him. You might be sitting there tonight saying, okay, pastor, you said what all's wrong, but what do we do if we've been wrong? These people ate the Passover in the wrong month. Most of them weren't consecrated. They did almost nothing right. But look at verse 18. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone, who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Our God is interested in the direction of your heart. The direction of your heart is carried in the direction of your feet. Whatever your heart wants, your mind is going to justify and your flesh is going to carry out. If you want the Lord, then point your life towards Him. And if you don't have every little detail right, He will pardon the man who is seeking Him. But it's not enough to claim to have Him and not really be seeking Him. Verse 22, Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites. <laughs> I'm going to take a message from Hezekiah. I'm going to assume that you're here tonight, not because you hate God, but because you love Him. Not because you want to get this wrong, but because you want to get it right. I want to speak to you a word of encouragement. It's not too late. This meal that we eat, it's not a symbol that we are perfect. It's a symbol that we are very much imperfect it's a symbol that we deserve the wrath of god but it fell on our messiah and we love him for taking the hit for us we love him so much that we would live for him or die for him now those are easy words to say when nothing's been required have you before you eat that meal tonight i beg you by the power of the holy ghost to consider whether you really would die for him if you're not living for him now an encouraging word to the pastorate, an encouraging word to the kingdom of priests sitting out here. If you have a high calling in Christ, the world is waiting to see you. 
You have a high calling in Christ. And you don't have to get it all perfect, but you do have to seek Him with all of your heart. He will pardon you if the direction of your heart is towards Him. Look at verse 26. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had not been... There had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Do you know, that was between two and three hundred years earlier. Our country is between two and three hundred years into its existence. They had failed to maintain what their fathers had started. But God pardoned them all on this single day, even though they didn't get it right because their hearts were yearning for Him. The people yearned for him so much that the priest repented. Do you have a responsibility today? Is there a passion that is beginning to stir in your souls? You can change the tide. The priest and the Levites stood to bless the people. These next words are so important. And God heard them. For their prayers reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. We're going to stand here in just a minute. Let us think about these words for a second. If you have to say that their prayers reached the heavens, if you have to say that God heard them in his holy dwelling place, what do you contrast that with? Why would you have to say that if everybody who ever prayed was received by God? You remember the Pharisee and the tax collector went to the temple to pray? And one prayed, Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other men. But the tax collector tore his clothes, beat his chest, and cried out that he was a sinner. Which do you think God received? See, there is an arrogance that is in this contemporary gospel that says, because I've intellectually acknowledged something, you and no one else have the right to tell me it's not in my heart and I've already obtained all I'm supposed to have. It's a done deal. And they're gospel-hardened. If you were the adversary, this would be the perfect way to send people to hell. But if you're able for a minute to say, maybe I've taken this thing too lightly. I never want to again. Maybe I've assumed too much, read too little, prayed too briefly, and yearned too infrequently. Maybe this is a moment for you when heaven will hear your prayer and you'll see the breakthrough that you've wanted. We don't serve him to get things. I'm not into a trinket gospel. I serve him because he's the ultimate. You can tell I am concerned. I'm facing courtroom. <laughs> win or lose, I win. If I have him, I have everything. I'm not serving him so that he will give me a victory. When I'm with him, I already have my victory. 
Church, don't sell out the eternal for something that is petty. You have a problem in here tonight? He can fix it. But that's not why we serve Him. We serve Him whether He'll fix it or not. And it just so happens that He loves you and He can fix it. Could y'all stand to your feet?